There we go. And there it is. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We are going to study the book of Revelation. We're at the end of chapter 10, and I want to give you the little backstory of where we've been and where we are. Um, this is prophetic literature. By that, I mean that it's often very symbolic language that you have to really look to the Old Testament to figure out what's going on sometimes. But what's there's a simultaneous thing happening, two things. God is pouring out his wrath on unsaved mankind as punishment, but as gradual punishment with great grace, the goal of which that punishment, that wrath, is to draw people to their knees and to their faith in the Savior, the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Um, so, uh, but also there are believers on the planet and Jews that have come to faith in Jesus, and they are being greatly, starting to be greatly persecuted by the Antichrist, a world leader we'll learn about a couple chapters over. Um, keep in mind that Revelation is not chronological. This, then this, then this, then this, just right through every chapter. Sometimes it skips ahead. Sometimes it skips back. Sometimes it retells the same story from a different viewpoint. We're going to see that uh, in chapter 12 uh, and even a little in chapter 11. So there are seven seals. We've seen all seven opened. The seventh seal is... The, seventh trump, the seven trumpets. Each seal was a judgment on mankind, um, and they tend to get more intense and more grandiose, bigger. What does God have to do to get mankind's attention? From the seven seals, there are seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet, which we haven't seen yet, we're about to, is the seven bowls. The bowls happen extremely rapidly. Some scholars think in as much as a few days or a few weeks, it's not stretched out over time like some of the seals we've seen have been. Um, okay, with that in mind, look at chapter 10 with me. But before that, so I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Wow, that was a good one. Somebody beat me to the punch there. Uh, and those of you on Zoom say amen. So there's that sign. I love it. So I know that you're awake. Um, Let's see. Uh, chapter 10 is about a mighty angel who's robed in a cloud. And we said that this is some scholars think Jesus Christ. Most do not. It's just another mighty angel. The word another is the key word in that verse one. It means in Greek, another of another uh, of the same kind. Heteros is of a different kind, another of a different kind. So this is another of the same kind of these other angels we've seen that have been sounding trumpets. He's got a little scroll in his hand. The majority opinion is that this little scroll is a miniature version of the sealed scroll way back several chapters ago, which is basically God's plan to right every wrong, judge sin, take back the world for his son, Jesus Christ, reward believers, bring in the consummation of history. And so, amazingly, John is going to, he's been an uh, observer in all the, and writing everything down as he sees it, he's going to suddenly become an actor a couple of times in the play now, if you will. So, um, the scroll, let's see where we want to jump in here. Um, the voice, verse 8, that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go. 
Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. Sea and land indicating dominance over the whole earth. He's representing God. So he, verse 9, that's where we left off. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He's now an actor in the play. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Kind of a strange thing. Eat it, it's going to be delicious, but you're going to get indigestion, right? Kind of strange. Um, so John, like I said, has become an actor here. Um, the question is, if the scroll is God's plan, a lot of scholars think the scroll is Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 19, the whole thing. Some say it's Revelation from here on out, chronologically. We're roughly at the middle of the tribulation, just a little before the middle of the seven-year period, almost three and a half years in. So um, he, as an actor in the play, and so he goes and asks for the scroll, and he's told to eat it. Um, this idea of eating is very, very prominent in the Bible with regard to Scripture. I'm going to show you several places, Old Testament and New, where the metaphor is given, the, the symbolic wording is given of us. We are supposed to, you know, we read the Word, and we take it in through our eye gate, and we understand it, and we meditate on it. But he's really saying, eat it, take it in. You ever heard the saying, you are what you eat? He's saying, take it in to the point that it becomes part of you. Digest the Word of God. So he's digesting revelation of all things. You know, there might be some lighter books you could eat that wouldn't be this, uh, give you this much indigestion. Um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both have passages that talk about eating God's Word. Um, but here, it's bittersweet. So the question is, why is that? Why is it sweet in his mouth, and yet he kind of gets indigestion from it? He has pain in his stomach afterwards. The answer is that this is all of God's revelation in the book of Revelation, which for a believer is very sweet, right? Jesus takes back the earth. All sin is judged. He gets to the end of Revelation, and the Antichrist is judged, Satan is judged, and thrown into the lake of fire. We consummate history with Jesus Christ. We reign and rule with him for a thousand years. There's a lot of good news here for believers. Martyrs that have been killed, their blood is avenged by God by the time we get to the end of this book. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, not just spiritually in heaven, but literally on the earth where he reigns. And then there's the eternal state, eternal life for all in the new Jerusalem. Lots of good news, sweet as honey in the mouth. But as John contemplates that, if you've ever gotten good news and bad news, you sort of try to concentrate on the good news. But the bad news is nothing for believers, but... John is a compassionate person, and he realizes that more people will go to hell and suffer God's wrath than will go to heaven. What did Jesus say? Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many find it. There's a way, Old Testament, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein is destruction. When John 
eats the book, takes it in, really meditates on the tremendous wrath of God that's coming down in sorrow that these people would not turn away from their sin and worship the living God and receive the, the free gift of salvation. When John sees how many martyrs are going to be killed by Antichrist in chapter 13 alone, when John sees the upheaval on planet Earth, earthquakes and all kinds of tremendous phenomena, he's grieved. So it's sweet in his mouth, a salvation, reward for believers, Christ reigning, God's tying up every knot in the story, if you will, no loose ends, but uh, he is just so grieved by it. The So what for you and me is this, never ever have the attitude, oh good, those unbelievers are going to suffer or they are suffering in hell. We should never ever have that attitude. We always should be, while people are alive, thinking, I've got to witness to this person and give them the gospel to the best of my ability while there's still time. Um, it's not ours to take vengeance either. Okay, here's a few verses. Uh, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, your words were found and I ate them. Your word became to me the gladness and joy of my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16. This book is not only history. It's not only theology. It's not only the gospels and the story of salvation through thousands of years. This book is also in a real sense, medicine. Medicine for the soul. If you will, spiritual food. There's a real sense in which we come here, all of us, all of you, all of you on Zoom, and me, we're all getting fed spiritually. Um, so we, we want to talk about that a little more in a second. Um, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Remember Paul saying that? If you've tasted the good word of God, there's all kinds of metaphors about tasting it, drinking it in, nourished with the words of faith and of the good teaching you've closely followed. As newborn babes long for the milk of the word to grow in salvation. In the New Testament, he makes a distinction between milk, which you wouldn't give a baby. Oh, look, it's a newborn baby. Let's get him a steak, honey. You would never do that, right? Milk not solid food. But as we mature, we can dive in deeper to the word and see the truths that we maybe couldn't have understood before. Um, with birth comes growth. So I want to talk about eating now, a subject near and dear to my heart, because I like to eat. And that is, nobody here would say, if I said, are you hungry? Would you like something to eat? And nobody here would say, oh no, I ate last month right? By the looks of most of us, we, we ate a little more recently than last month. What's your point, Joe? God created us so that we need food. He could have made us like robots, just we don't need food, right? We need food, not only because of for energy, but for healing, for sustenance to keep us alive, for energy. We need drink, water, that kinds of thing. We need daily food, ideally, to stay alive. Yes, I know you can fast and all that. Children need food to grow. 
we as Christians need, listen, a regular diet, consistent diet of spiritual food, the word. What do you mean? I go to church Sunday. Okay, does that mean you eat once a week? Well, no. Okay, but what do you do on Monday, spiritually speaking? Uh, a regular, consistent diet, not just Tuesday night. The best way to read the Bible is one book at a time, one verse at a time. Not, as a new Christian, I used to do the, I'm going to read this now, wherever God leads me, right? Not a good way to study God's word. Um, so God gives us a spiritual hunger. And if we feed on the what the world's giving us more than what God's giving us, our whole attitude is going to be bent toward the world, toward sin, toward the news and all of that. So a regular diet of scripture, add to that. That's the main course, scripture. What are the side dishes, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Obedience, prayer, fellowship. That's a, a really well-balanced, scriptural, daily diet. Stay in touch with other believers. What does Jesus call himself in John 6? I am the bread of life. Interesting metaphor. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Does he mean food-wise? No, he means spiritually. Once you understand who and what Jesus is, I can say in my life this is true. I really sought out truth. And, and some stupid places, I have to say. But once I got to know Jesus Christ, I never hungered again spiritually for I really need to find the truth. You know, don't you? You have the truth, Jesus Christ. Um, so, yeah, God gives that spiritual hunger. So back to the text here, and he's told to eat God's word. He really wants him to take it in. The other object lesson here is this. You'll see it in a couple verses. John has to prophesy. We're not even halfway through the book of Revelation. This is all prophecy that John is writing down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In order to give it out, you got to take it in, right? He's saying, don't just read the scroll, eat it, take it in. You can't give away what you don't have yourself. So he's going to really have to take it in and he's got the right attitude. It is sweet. It's also very, very bitter that many will die, that many will be judged. Feeding on the soul food of God, I wrote in my notes here. Um, so look at verse 10. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. Tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. It's the proper attitude. Not those unbelievers are getting what they deserve, even though they are. We need to remember that apart from Jesus Christ and grace, if I, you and I got what we deserved, it wouldn't be good, right? We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. In grace, he gives us salvation. So then here it is, verse 11. His, his prophetic office, if you will, is being reinstated and reconfirmed because he's got to teach the other half of this book. Then verse 11, I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Why is that in there? Well, it's the reinstating of his political office, 
uh, not political, sorry, prophetic office. But the other thing is why are peoples, nations, languages, kings in there? Tongues, some translations have. The reason is this is not just for the Jews. It's not even prophecy just about the Christians. Let's just see how God's kids are going to do. It's for every single human being. Their future, their fate is foretold in what we're going to read at the end of this book. It's unlike any other book in the New Testament. So prophecy, you've all heard of prophets in the Old Testament. The last of the Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist. You say, no, no, that's in the New Testament, but it's prior to, it's prior to Christ's ministry. Their ministries barely intersect, and John is put in prison and beheaded, and Jesus' ministry is taken off. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah right before a revival. We're going to talk about the other times in history God has done that before. Prophets. Okay, most people, Christians, tend to think this way. So-and-so is a prophet. Elijah is a prophet. Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, whoever. Don't think of it as, oh, they predict the future. Prophecy. Part of what they do is indeed that. There are over 2,000 prophecies, meaning predictions of the future in the Old Testament. There's uh, about 320 prophecies, predictions of the future in the Old Testament that have to do with this coming figure called the Messiah. And Jesus fulfills uh, uh, over 200 of them in his short life on planet Earth. Very specific prophecies. But there's two meanings for prophecy or being a prophet. One is the foretelling of the future. Thus saith the Lord, God is going to do this, and this is going to happen, and this leader is going to fall, and whatever. You see Daniel do it. You see a lot of prophets do it. But more often than that, the other phase or part of prophecy is something uh, that sounds similar, but it's not. Foretelling the future, yes. Forth-telling God's truth. Just preaching. So in that sense, your pastor, when he's giving a sermon, when you hear a sermon on the radio or TV, he's prophesying. He's not telling the future. So am I. By teaching God's word, it, I'm not saying I'm a prophet in that Old Testament capital P sense, but anybody that teaches God's word accurately by the Holy Spirit is prophesying, forth telling, telling forth God's word. If you're sitting on your lawn with a friend, your next door neighbor, and you're telling them about Jesus, guess what? You're prophesying, not telling the future, just telling them about Jesus. So he must prophesy again. It's a reinstating of his prophetic office about everybody, all the nations, languages, kings, and what have you. Now we're going to come to chapter uh, 11. We, if you've been here for any length of time, you know, fourth trumpet. Wow, that was a heavy-duty thing, a disaster. The fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet. We've been in a pause for all of chapter 10, and we will be for half of chapter 11. Then there's going to be another little pause, little sidebars, sidebars that God uses to fill in the details. So uh, the chronology is paused. He's going to actually go back in time a little bit. We're going to talk about the two witnesses. How many have ever heard of the two witnesses from Revelation 11? Very mysterious figures. Some controversy as to who they are. I don't think it's that hard to figure out, but that's just me. 
Um, there is a majority opinion about who they are. Um, we're also going to see they're two very unique evangelists um, who's, or they're going to preach in the end time, uh, in the end times. Uh, let's see. Then we're going to see the seventh trumpet. And then chapter 15 is where the time clock starts going again, the chronology in the last seven years of human history. Okay, let's dive in with verse 1. Again, John is an actor in the play. Watch. He's not just watching. Chapter 11, verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. There's the assignment. John's giving, given a measuring assignment, given a, a reed like a measuring rod. A reed was almost like a piece of bamboo, a fairly sturdy um, piece of something that grew that could be cut and measured, and it was used all over that part of the world. As a, They didn't have yardsticks, they don't have tape measures, any of the digital stuff, obviously. So he's given that, and, and he's got another assignment. Go measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshipers. You say, wait a minute, when did John write Revelation? Most scholars think right around 95 AD. Wait, when did Jesus die? Somewhere around 30 to 32, maybe 33 at the latest AD. You're saying Jesus has been dead 60 plus years. Yes, quite a while. Okay, what's the problem here? Measure the temple. What temple? Temple was destroyed in 70 AD, 20, 25 years before this. There is no temple. Since 70 AD to today, 2022, the Jews have not had a temple. They haven't had a holy of holies. They haven't had a single sacrifice for sin. You say, why is that important? That's the key to Judaism. There has to be a covering for sin. Each head of the household brings a lamb without blemish. The high priest inspects it if it's okay. Jesus, the lamb without blemish, sinless lamb of God. The lamb, um, there's ceremonies that go on, but... Uh, the lamb is slain in place of the family for their sins. It's supposed to happen every year. Hasn't happened for almost 2,000 years. What's your point, Joe? He's, John has been transported to the end times. Okay, you with me? Way into the future. Time travel? Okay, if you prefer that term, yes. It's very sci-fi-ish, this whole book. The question is, is this temple in heaven or on the earth? Because Hebrews, I'm going to show you, talks about the fact that what God told them to build on earth, build the temple just this way, was all a copy of what's in heaven, the real spiritual temple. Almost every scholar believes this temple he's supposed to go build is on the earth. You mean in the future? Yes. In the end times, yes. Are we in the end times now? I don't know. Maybe. We're getting pretty close. Are we in the seven-year tribulation? I don't see how. I don't think so. What's your point, Joe? If you go to Jerusalem, there's no Jewish temple there. What are you saying? I'm saying this is why most 
uh, scholars believe the Jews are going to get permission to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. Are you talking about a real building just like the old? I am. There are several groups in Israel who this is their whole purpose in life. They're gathering all the instruments necessary and what have you. Um, but the question must be arising in your head. Wait a minute. The Jews lost their nation. Correct. 70 AD, and didn't have a nation until 1948. Do you remember that? After World War II, the only nation in the world to ever have this happen, they lost their homeland and they got it back in 1948. A total miracle, a total God thing. They are... Israel is the size of New Jersey. It's not big. They are surrounded by Muslim countries that hate their guts and hate that they're there. My wife and I went to visit our son who was studying in Egypt. We went into a gift shop and we knew that the Muslims hate the Jews. They just do. And in a gift shop, we're just kind of walking around. There's a globe of planet Earth. Okay, beautiful. And so I just spun the globe there in the United States. Okay, Middle East. Oh, look, there's Jordan. There's Egypt. There's one country that's blank. So I said to the guy, what is this? And he just kind of smiled. And I said, what country? Why is that country not labeled? And he said, that's the Jews. We hate the Jews. I said, that's Israel, right? And he said, we don't call it that. It's our land. And they took it. So I didn't want to get in a big debate with the guy and get my head chopped off. So I moved on. But I just found it interesting. So many believe that Israel will rebuild their temple in Jerusalem in the end times. Well, why don't they just do it now? They're back in the country since 1948, Joe. That's a lot of years. Answer. God made sure it could only happen at the right time. So sure that where the temple is thought to have been, it's very hard to tell, by the way, because the, the Romans so completely raised that building and took it down, it's hard to tell where the foundation really was. But most scholars think the spot where it's supposed to be, okay, the GPS coordinates, if you will, there's a Muslim mosque there called the Dome of the Rock. And if you stand on a mountain and look down into the valley and look at Jerusalem, you see this big, shiny gold building. That's like a dagger in the heart of every Jew. That should be where our temple is, and it's the Dome of the Rock. That's why the Jews can't just knock on the door and, would you guys mind moving that way 400 feet? And then we could, I'm sure the Muslims would accommodate them, right? No. However, there are recent discoveries that make some experts think that where the temple actually was isn't exactly right there. It's just right next door to the north. So that it might be possible to build a temple. John is told to measure the temple. And so this may be a rebuilt temple. There are scholars with the, um, with the symbolic view of Revelation that say, this is just symbolic. It's not a real building. The temple means Christians. 
the church. We're all built up into a holy building, a royal priesthood. We are the temple of God. First Corinthians says, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So all Christians make up the temple. That's all he's saying. Measuring it, he's just checking it out to see, take our temperature spiritually. Maybe, maybe there won't be a temple built. Maybe there will. So, but he's told to measure it, but with weird instructions. Um, let's look at them. Measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. So there are people involved that are getting measured or counted, in a sense, checked out. But look at verse 2. But exclude the outer court. Leave that out. Cast it out is literally how it reads. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They'll trample on the holy city for 42 months. See, the next verse has 1,260 days. Jews reckon years with 30-day months. So you're going to see several ways to say the same thing, at least four. Three and a half years. That's the really bad part of the tribulation. Three and a half years, half of the seven. First half is bad, not nearly as bad as the second half. All these different ways are 42 months. That's three and a half years. 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Old Testament says a time times two more and half a time. That's three and a half years. So when you see all those things, it's all ways of saying the same thing. I just wanted to make that clear. Okay, so he's supposed to measure, but leave some things out. In the Bible, Old Testament and New, there's measuring that goes on. It either means one of two things. Ownership, if you own two acres, you can go there and exactly have it surveyed and measure. This is my land. It shows ownership, dominion over, measure it. It's God's, measure it for God. But things are also measured in the Bible when there's about to be major, listen, judgment. And so that's what is thought to be happening here. He's told to measure the uh, temple. It's probably the, a real literal uh, Jewish temple on planet earth. Um, let's see. Do we need to go there now? Yeah, maybe we should. Let's go to Daniel. Keep your finger in Revelation. Go to Daniel chapter 7. So if you find Ezekiel, take a right. That's my best thing to tell you. Daniel chapter, I'm sorry, did I say 7? I mean Daniel chapter 9. That's what I meant. Daniel 9, we'll only be here a second. This passage, Daniel chapter 9, is the key to understanding the time frame of Revelation. And amazingly, Daniel 9, if you can turn there, after, you know, second half of the Old Testament, uh, it's only verses 24, 25, 26, 27. That's it. Just that small passage is the whole key to Revelation. We'll be referring to it again and again and again as we go. Um, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want to ask, if you're still awake, say amen. amen. Okay, that's good. Okay, I'll try to go quickly. Revelation, I'm sorry, Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people, that's the Jews, and your holy city, that's Jerusalem, what, what's the purpose of this? To finish 
transgression. What's transgression? Sin. You heard that right. To put an end to, to finish sin. This is a big deal. This is the whole key to the Bible. When do we ever get to the place where sin is finished? Seventy-sevens are decreed. What's going on there? Listen, my friend Chris Burton there. If I hadn't seen him for years and I said, oh, there's Chris Burton. I haven't seen him for a decade. Would any of you ask, how long has it been? No, you know, in American culture, what's a decade? Ten years. The Jews talk in sevens. If I, have, if I said I haven't seen him in a seven, you'd figure it out. Oh, he means seven years. That's right. These are 70 seven-year periods. Okay, do you understand? 70 decades would be 700 years. 70 sevens, each seven is a week of years. Okay, but it's seven years. 70 times seven, 490. You with me? This is saying that there's 490 years that are decreed, meaning God said it, it's going to happen for the Jews and Jerusalem to do what? Finish transgression. Wow, that's amazing. Put an end to sin, to atone, pay for wickedness. That's the cross. In these 77s, all this stuff's going to happen. You with me so far? Say amen. Okay, I thought you were sleeping. All right to atone for wickedness, to bring in, listen to what these years will include, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And literally the word for holy means the most holy place. So that enough, that's enough right there to get our attention. And we're only one verse in out of the five verses. Know and, or four verses, know and understand this, Verse 25. Now he's going to give a time marker. This might be the most amazing prophecy, prediction of the future, in the whole Bible. No one understand this. That phrase means this is not going to be rocket science. You can figure it out. Know and understand. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Let's see, seven and 62 is 69 sevens. You with me so far? 69 times seven is 483. This scripture is saying from one time marker in history, what is it? The issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in ruins. Okay, there's a guy in 444 BC, I think it is, or 454, I can never remember, that issues a decree, okay, you Jews can go back and rebuild your temple. Okay, and it's a day in March in our calendar. From that day forward, when you count um, 173,880 days, what number is that? That's 69 times seven, 483 years in days. When you count forward and you account for leap years and you account for the fact that there's no year zero, right? From 1 BC, it went to 1 AD. You with me? Guess what? You come to a date in April, Passover, the week before, actually, 32 AD. Hmm, who was alive around? Oh, wow. It turns out this to the day comes out to the day when Jesus rides into town on a donkey. 
Oh, not the cross, not the miracles? No. Why? Because that's the one day. Remember, he would heal people and they'd go, I'm going to tell everybody. And he'd go, don't tell anybody. Remember, I don't want to be known as a healer. Are you the Christ? And he really doesn't answer. He eventually rides into town on a donkey, which is what Zechariah predicts he would do, the Messiah, and says, here I am. He says to Jerusalem, you guys should have known the day of your visitation. It's in Daniel chapter 9 to the day. Okay, you with me? So this verse says, from that issuing of that decree, 69, 7, 7 and 62, um, something's going to happen. It will be rebuilt. What will? Jerusalem and the, the city and the temple, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, after the 483 years, which is 7 and 62, I know you're confused. I am, I know. Anyway, the anointed one, oh, that's the Messiah, yeah, will be in Hebrew, karat. It means killed, cut off. The Jews would be shocked. To, what? The Messiah, the everlasting king, who's going to solve all the world's problems, is going to be killed. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. What did he have? Nothing. Well, he had the, that really nice seamless garment. Remember that? And they took it off him and, and they gambled for it. Remember that's in Psalm 22 predicted several hundred years before. The people of the ruler <clears throat> who will come will destroy the city. Who destroyed the city? The Romans. It's thought that this is hinting that the antichrist, the ruler that will come, at the end times, will be part of, the, of a revived Roman Empire. Uh, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He, verse 27, wait, he who? It refers back to the last person mentioned, the ruler who will come. That's Antichrist. Listen, he will confirm a covenant with the many. It's a way of re referring to Israel. Okay? Antichrist is going to take power, and at first he's just going to be the greatest guy. Solve all the problems, solve world hunger, stop the wars, disarm the whole world. Everything's fine. First time in human history, one guy's in charge of the whole world. Satanically empowered leader. Okay? He's going to tell the Jews, go ahead and rebuild your temple at the end times. That's how they get their temple built. And go ahead and have your sacrifices. Oh, this guy's the best. He will confirm a covenant with the many, the Jews, for one seven. Wait, what's a seven again? Seven years. We've had 69. We've got one more to go. The thing is, when Jesus comes to the earth around uh, 30 AD, right around there, 32, the clock stops. We've been in a pause since that time, and we still are to now. Well, when will the clock start ticking again? When do we get to that 70th week of years, seven more years? The tribulation. When the Antichrist rises to power, the clock starts again. Is there a one-world leader right now? No. That's why we, I said earlier, are we in the end times? Could be. Are we in the tribulation? No way. Yes, but things are bad. Did you see the earthquake? And I know we're not in the end times yet. 
Nobody knows who the world leader is going to be. He'll confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years in, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He's letting the Jews for three and a half years do sacrifices there. I don't know what PETA is going to say. You know what PETA is? P-E-T-A. People for the ethical treatment of animals. They're slaughtering what in Egypt? Can you imagine? It's religious. Leave them alone. Antichrist midway through the tribulation is going to say no more sacrifices. You know why? Because he's jealous. You're sacrificing to God in heaven. Stop. I'm God. That's what he's going to say. Um, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24. It is thought that what he's going to do is walk into the temple, Second um, Thessalonians says, and he's going to say, this temple is dedicated to God and to worshiping God, and I'm him. Who's more powerful than me? In chapter 13, we'll see that the Antichrist has a fatal wound that's healed. You say, wait, isn't a fatal wound fatal? Like it kills the person? Yes. His fatal wound's going to be healed. Fake resurrection. The world will follow after him. So back to the building of the temple, Antichrist will enable the Jews to build the temple. You say, won't that be glorious? At least for three and a half years, the Jews will have a temple. Listen, I believe, a lot of scholars believe, that God in heaven will absolutely see that temple as an abomination itself. You say, wait, what? No, no. They're worshiping Yahweh, the God of... Listen, what are they doing in there? Slaughtering animals, sacrifice. God's in heaven going... My son is the ultimate and final sacrifice. What are you doing? The fact that Antichrist takes away that, and what we're going to see later in chapter 11, if Joe ever gets to it, will be where the Jews realize, oh my, Jesus was the Messiah. Okay. Um, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That happens later in Revelation. Now go back to Re Revelation. I just wanted you to get that background. One last quick thing, and we got to take our break. To yesterday, a friend of mine lives down the street, Christian guy, sends me a, a, a link. If you want to see it, email me and I'll send it to you. I, maybe I'll try to remember to put it in the notes email. He sent me a link. I click on the link. It's an article, news article. As I told you, there's all kinds of groups in Israel trying to get the temple going. One of the things they need, of course, is the land and the agreement that they can do it. But there are other things you need to do it. One of them is the ashes of the red heifer. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the ashes of the red heifer. Okay, a lot of you have. You say, what's that? Isn't a heifer a female cow? Yes. Has to be red. There aren't that many. It has to be, listen, perfect. What do you mean perfect? No blemishes anywhere on the, oh, look at the foot. No good. Get rid of it. No good. They just sent over to Israel five red heifers perfect to Israel. They can only be used in a set amount of time in the next two years 
or those are no good. Are you saying this is all going to go down in tears? I don't know. But they, they have that. You have to burn the red heifer sacrifice, and the ashes are used in sacrifice. Don't make me explain all that. Anyway, they're trying to get that all together. Let's take our two-minute break, and I'll try to tie this all together in the second half. Don't go away. I'll be right back. I'm going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. Find your seats, if you will, those of you to hear. Welcome back, those of you on Zoom. All right, it's about to get interesting. I know that was a long detour. I apologize, sort of. Um, anyway, he's going to measure the temple, but only certain parts, the Holy of Holies, and um, but he's going to leave out the outer courts. So we need to, before we dive in, I can't wait to get to the two witnesses to tell you the truth, but we need to uh, explain a little bit about the, temple. Um, he's going to, let, let's see, let's go back to the text first. Uh, let me grab this piece of paper. Okay. <laughs> uh, exclude the outer court. Don't measure it. It's been given to the Gentiles. They'll trample on the holy city, that's Jerusalem, for three and a half years. Unbelievers will trample, devour, so to speak, um, Jerusalem. What's going on here? So, uh, yeah, we already talked about that. I'm trying to give you both sides of all this stuff. Um, uh, we could go there, but not now. All right. The Temple Institute, the faithful of the Temple Mount. These are all organizations preparing all the implements they need to rebuild the temple and have uh, sacrifices again, Jewish services in there again. Um, Hebrews 10, we won't go there now. Verses 1 to 18 explains in a long passage that Jesus is the one and final sacrifice of God. No more sacrifice is needed uh, for sin. To sacrifice a lamb for the sins of my family, ignoring Jesus, is an absolute insult to God. Can you see that? I sent my son, he died, and you're just ignoring it. Uh, okay, we already talked about that. Okay, so the temple, um, the outer court is to be left out. The temple, the whole thing was a big campus, if you will. There was the Holy of Holies, the holy place. Then there was the court of the Jews, the court of the Gentiles, the outer court. He's saying, don't measure that. That's a, a, the Gentiles have rejected Jesus and me. Le don't measure that. Um, only measure uh, the inner part of the actual temple. Okay. Um, verse, let's see, do we finish that? Yeah. Verse three. Here come the two witnesses. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. You guys on Zoom, you doing okay? You awake? All right. Amen. Verse 3, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. How long is that class? Three and a half years, right? 42 months. So there's two witnesses, and God's appointing them. They're going to prophesy. They're going to teach. They're going to uh, be specifically for, I'll show you, Israel. You mean the rest of the world won't hear them? No, they will but they're mainly there to convert Israel. I'll show you that in a second. They're clothed in sackcloth. 
They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. They stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, imagine two dudes in the street of Jerusalem witnessing for Jesus. You got the picture? Dressed in sackcloth. We'll come back to that. You don't get that at uh, Macy's. Okay. If anyone tries to harm them, verse 5, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. They have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Strange evangelical uh, evangelists, I should say, in Israel. Um, I'll, further down in the text, we don't need to go there now, but it says they die in the place they're witnessing, and it's Jerusalem, clearly. Okay, so let's go back to the top. Verse 3, two witnesses. Some say the witnesses are symbolic. It's not people. It's just the church. It's Christianity, or it's the church and the New Testament. There's all kinds of theories. But these sound like two guys to me. Okay. Um, by the way, the, the pronouns are all male. It, it, they're male. Okay. Um, so they will prophesy. They have a ministry. It's prophecy. They're going to be preaching the gospel. And because of modern technology, I'm going to show you in a minute, these guys are going to become unbelievably famous. Okay. Because the world hates their message. And you say, well, why would people try to harm them? Why doesn't the Jerusalem police just have them? Because Jerusalem is Sodom and Egypt. A couple verses down, it's become evil. Why don't they just arrest them? They can't. I believe, John MacArthur agrees, there will be multiple attempts to shut these two dudes up. Go get them. Arrest them. Did you send those four guys to arrest them? Yes. What happened? They're dead. What? What happened? They're, they're incinerated in the street. They just burned. What? Was there a fire? No. Except these guys spoke and something happened and they're burned up. Okay, send, send some soldiers. Can you imagine? Same thing. Really? Yes. Okay, send the National Guard, of whatever they have. Send Mossad, you know, their CIA. They're dead. We can't stop these guys. Okay, shoot them with a tank. The tank burned up. We tried that. Can you imagine? Read it again. Um, I skipped verse 4, I know. If anyone tries to harm them, verse 5, fire comes from their mouths, their mouths, meaning these two dudes, and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Wait, but couldn't it be the church? Listen, have people in the last five years killed Christians who are part of the church? Yes. Did fire come out of the Christians' mouths so that they couldn't die? No. These guys, for a time, how long do they preach? 1260 days, Joe. Right, three and a half years. They are unharmable. They are invincible as long as God wants them to get the word out. Do you understand? I think you could put a nuclear, drop a nuclear bomb on them and it wouldn't work. God will decide. 
And these are his two witnesses. Obviously, the question is, who are these dudes? We don't have their names. No, but we have their resumes. You say, really? Yes. And I'll show you why the vast majority of Bible scholars think who, who they think these two guys are. But a little background first. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Uh, by the way, preterists who say all of this took place a long time ago say these are, this is just a head of a state and the head of the church, whoever that will be at that time or was at that time. Zechariah 4 has a passage about olive trees and lampstands, very similar language. And there it's a religious leader and a political leader. But it doesn't really fit the context that well there. What does fit the context is in that passage, there are olive trees that are feeding piped in, so to speak, metaphorically, to lampstands. Lampstands burn olive oil, okay? You put in this much olive oil, it might burn for a week, and it's going to run out and the flame's going to die. But not if they're piped in to an unlimited supply of olive oil. What's oil in the Bible symbolic of, Joe? Anybody know? The Holy Spirit. These guys are so full of the Holy Spirit, I think they can preach all day long if they want. Can't stop them. It's fully God's word, and it's in a pretty amazing ministry that they have. Um, one candidate I'm going to quickly eliminate for you is Enoch. Some say one of them could be Enoch. Why is that? Because Enoch went to heaven, didn't die, right? Just taken to heaven. Okay, so he's available. He's on the bench, at least, we could say, in the sports world. But he's a Gentile. Enoch was a Gentile before Abraham. So he's kind of out because this is a very Jewish chapter, I'll show you. Jerusalem, these guys are witnessing. The majority of the scholars believe this is Moses and Elijah. When the Jews refer to the Old Testament, they call it, the law and the prophets. The person that most symbolizes the law to the Jews is Moses. The person that most symbolizes the prophets is the greatest of the prophets, Elijah. Okay, but are they on the bench? Are they available? Elijah, Jewish guy, prophet, didn't die. Got taken to heaven. Remember? God took him. Okay, so he's still around, yes. But wait, Moses did die, yes. Who buried Moses? End of Deuteronomy. This is weird, God. It's the only person, you know you're important when God buries you, right? <laughs> God buried Moses, why is that? Um, it is thought that the devil wanted to use that body as a shrine to get people's eyes off of God. It's thought that God knew I got plans for this dude in the future. Jesus, Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Do you remember that? He takes Peter, James, John, the inner core of his disciples up to a high mountain, and they see him start glowing. Do you remember that? Jesus. It's almost like Clark Kent takes off the glasses and pulls open his sport coat and shows the big S, this is who I really am, okay? Forgive me, Lord, I know, much more than Superman. Anyway, 
Who stands there with Jesus talking to him? Do you remember? Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets. Who are Peter, James, and John? Orthodox Jews. Peter, who suffers from foot-in-mouth disease, doesn't think first, he just speaks. Do you remember? In that passage, he says, oh, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, I get it. You're on an equal footing with Moses and Elijah. This is incredible. We should build three tabernacles, one for each of you. We get it, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. That's pretty impressive. A big cloud comes, God's shaking his head going, please, Peter. And a voice from heaven says, do you remember? Singular, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. Hear him. Singular. Oh, who's it going to be? You think Elijah? Maybe Moses? Jesus? No. The smoke goes away. No Moses. No Elijah. Just Jesus. Remember? Um, why is that? Because Moses was tremendously important. So was Elijah. But they can't save anybody. They're both sinners. Right? All they did was point forward to the coming Messiah. I've always wondered in that passage, by the way, how do Peter, James, and John know? There's no photos. Oh, that's isn't that Elijah? Yeah, I think the other guy's Moses. I don't know. The way they're dressed, supernaturally it's revealed to them. I don't know. But they know it's Moses and Elijah. That's reason number one why people think this is Moses and Elijah. They were there before. Here they are to witness again. Are you saying, Joe, they, from thou, more than a thousand years ago, these dudes show up again? That's what I'm saying. There are those that think it's not Moses and Elijah, but these two come in the spirit and the power of Moses and Elijah. It's possible because John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But in John 1, when he's asked, are you Elijah? What does he say? No. And he would know, I would think, right? He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. But these guys are pretty amazing. Let's look at the middle uh, verse that we skipped. Um, go back to, whoops, I grabbed the wrong page. There we go. Um, they're going to prophesy 1260 days. Stop right there. What are their sermons going to be like? I'll tell you. Jesus is Lord. Here's why from the books of Moses. Here's why from Elijah's prophecies, Isaiah said this, they're preaching to Jews. And Jews are going to get wind of the fact that every time somebody tries to kill these dudes, they end up barbecued, right? That's an unusual news story. I can picture live from CNN, live from Fox News, live from Al Jazeera. I'm on the streets of Jerusalem, and as you can see behind me, these two nutcases are still clothed in sackcloth, which, by the way, is burlap or camel hair clothes. Wouldn't be very comfortable. It's the clothing of humility and mourning over sin because they're trying to convince their Jewish brethren, time is short. I'm sure that's part of the message. Jesus is Lord. You've seen three and a half years of plagues of... Uh, floods of all kinds of crazy things. This is it. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Okay. That's what they're preaching. They're preaching judgment. If you want to, this is, I always hate this, but you ever hear this Southern Baptist, somebody would say, 
Turn or burn. You ever heard that one? I think that's what they're saying, but I don't think they have southern accents. Okay. Um, Malachi 4.5 says Elijah will return before the coming of the Messiah. Another hint. Okay, but let's look at their resumes. You say, where do you see that? Um, let's see. Verse 6. They have power. Okay, that doesn't tell you anything. To shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. You know what that means? The whole second half of the tribulation, three and a half years, no rain. You mean on the whole earth or just in Jerusalem? I don't know. Could be the whole earth. Stop the rain. That's what, guess who did that? Elijah. James tells us three and a half years. Elijah prayed, no rain. Fits the resume of Elijah. And they have power to turn the waters into blood. Who did that in the Old Testament? Moses. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who did that? Moses. Hmm. Mount of Transfiguration. Interesting, isn't it? Who better to witness to the Jews than the greatest of the prophets and the guy responsible for the law? Moses is going to preach sermons about grace that you can't keep the law. Every man's a sinner. You need Jesus Christ. He was the guy. The fact that they are uh, not able to be destroyed uh, because everybody kill, that tries to kill them, that's going to be a miracle that turns the hearts of most Jews to Jesus Christ in the end times. Um, they're the two olive trees, the two lampstands, verse 4. They stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So they are... Preaching, uh, warning, judgment, coming wrath, sin. They're explaining the plagues, the seals, the bulls. They're predicting the future probably. Jesus is coming back. You better be ready. Um, let's see. God has always sent, listen, witnesses before judgment or an explosion of belief or revival. Watch. God is going to flood the earth. He sends Enoch and Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Moses in Egypt, he was sent to Egypt uh, before judgment on Egypt and the freeing and salvation of the Jews. Later, John the Baptist, right before the Messiah. And here, and the destruction of Jerusalem. And here, these two guys. I believe they might be two guys, modern guys, in the spirit and power of Elijah and Moses. I think it's really Moses and Elijah, and here's why. Because that's who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that was already more than a 1,000 years after those, at least seven, 800 years for Elijah. Those guys lived, and there they are. Um, in that passage, by the way, Matthew 17, the, the Transfiguration, it doesn't say what they talk about, but it says Moses and Elijah showed up with Jesus, and they were talking with Jesus about the... The coming events kind of thing. Pretty interesting. Um, this is going to spark a huge revival. This is what God has been waiting for for the Jews for a very, very long time. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, what about calling fire on enemies? Elijah did it in 2 Kings 1. Uh, pretty amazing. Jeremiah 5.14, I will make my words fire in your mouth, and this people would. It shall devour them. 
Sounds like people are getting burned up. And the Antichrist, who's alive at the time, is so upset with these two guys. He's sending armies, and people are getting burned up. So, um, but it's God's way of saying, this is my message. Better not mess with these dudes, right? Uh, Incineration instantly. So God will allow them to preach three and a half years. Imagine that you're in the army or the police or the secret service or the CIA equivalent of the Antichrist. And he says, John, Jeff, Tom, I want you to see you in my office. I want you guys to go kill these dudes. And you've already known people that have been, in, you know, you want to call in sick tomorrow, right? Really? Kill them? Yes. You can shoot them from the rooftop a long ways away, and they, they get burned up. It's pretty amazing. Let's move on, shall we? Um, oh, five periods of signs and wonders in the Bible before we move on. Moses, Joshua. Miracles don't go like this. Like there's always lots of miracles going on. There's periods where God uses signs and wonders, and these guys are full of them. The plagues, the blood, turning water into blood means the water that's already been denigrated from all the other stuff that's gone on, now they can make it undrinkable. Five periods where God has done this. Moses and Joshua, miracles occurring. Elijah and Elisha, miracles. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, you know, those guys. And then the time of Christ and the apostles, that's four. The fifth one is here. Moses and Elijah return, miracles, tremendous preaching. Okay, verse seven. Now, when they have finished their testimony, what does that mean? When the three and a half years are up, when God says, everything I wanted you to say, and I told you to say, you said. These guys are saying, thus saith the Lord every single day, and they're not lying. He's telling them what to say. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. When they finish their testimony, verse 7, the beast, Antichrist, that comes up from the abyss, abyss, you know, beneath the earth, satanic kind of thing, evil, the beast will attack them and overpower them, and shockingly, he'll kill them, both of them. Pretty amazing. Now, again, the CNN, the Fox News, the Al Jazeera, the CBS, ABC, NBC, PBS, they're all there. And wow, somebody finally killed him. This is a major feather in the cap of the Antichrist who has had to put up with these guys and couldn't shut them up. I can imagine the um, tremendous um, censorship, right? I'm going to post on Facebook that video of those... uh, Oh, it's, they took it down, right? You ever had that happen? Um, now, Antichrist is allowed to kill him. Wow, this is huge. By this time, a lot of the Jews have begun to believe. More will believe in a moment, a couple more days. Watch. He'll overpower them and kill them. Verse 8, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. One of those is a city. One of those is a country. In the Bible, they are both symbolic of, emblematic of great evil, perversion, wickedness, sin. Well, which city is it? 
doesn't tell us. Oh, wait, yes, it does. Where also their Lord was crucified. Where was that? Jerusalem. You're saying Jerusalem has become Sodom and Egypt? Yes. And yet, Jews are being saved there that didn't believe. Okay? My favorite word in verse 8 is the word there, T-H-E-I-R. I never saw it before. It blew my mind this week. Where their Lord was crucified. Whose Lord? There goes back to the first word in verse 8. Do you see it? Their bodies, whose bodies? Moses and Elijah. Listen, the great men of Judaism. Moses and Elijah have a Lord. Yeah, you mean Yahweh God in heaven. No. I mean, that's true, yes. Their Lord was crucified. Whose Lord? Moses and Elijah claimed Jesus as their Lord. It blew my mind this week. So the greatest um, act of disrespect beyond killing somebody is don't let their body be buried. Leave it in the streets for everybody to see. Let them rot and smell in public they drove me crazy for three and a half years. Leave their bodies there. Now, this is Antichrist's own idea, he thinks. And yet, God's, you know, working everything to his glory, right? So, now the reporters are all there with cameras. I can't believe this, Jim, but live from Jerusalem, there they are. This is day two. They're dead. Flies are starting to land on the bodies, and this is a pretty amazing thing. Why three and a half days? Because it kind of sounds like three and a half years. The Jews believe that the body and the soul, if the guy dies, the first three days, the soul's still there. But on the fourth day, remember Lazarus? That's why Jesus waits four days. By the fourth day, they're dead, dead, truly dead. No more spirit. They're dead. Okay, keep reading. Their bodies will lie in the public square, figuratively Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, verse 9, some, of the, some from every, listen, people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. I don't think that means people are visiting Jerusalem to go check it out in person. I think God knew there would be worldwide satellite television, cable TV, the internet, phones, where everybody, no matter where you are in the world, you could, there it is, day four. They're still there. That's incredible. What a feather in the cap of Antichrist. Nobody could kill him. He did it. Don't you love this? Everybody's going to know. These are the most famous two dudes in the world right now except for Antichrist, and he beat him. We won. Evil won. The inhabitants of the earth, verse 10, will start a new holiday. We'll gloat over them and we'll celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Tormented them, yes, with the truth. If you were ever not a Christian, a horrible sinner like me, and you heard the gospel, you might not want to admit it, but it tormented me, made me feel guilty. 
I didn't like to be around Christians, um, especially when I was in the midst of really sinning. So um, sinful earth rejoices. They send each other presents, sort of a hellish Christmas, right? Um, and maybe there's greeting cards. You know, Hallmark gets on it right away and happy dead prophets day. How about that? And they're just celebrating that these guys are finally gone and they've been shut up by the Antichrist. The last great Mardi Gras celebration, and it's not great. Um, but then, that's not the end of the story. But after three and a half days, verse 11, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Can you imagine? It's day four, live from CNN, and whoa, they're getting up, right? Everybody's running like this is an amazing miracle. Listen, 2,000 years before this, God used a miracle of resurrection on the third day to prove that his son really was the son of God. If there's any remaining Jews that were still on the fence, now they think, oh, they're dead now. Oh my, they're alive again. Now the weird twist or turn in the plot that you're not expecting is what comes next. Because what I'm expecting is they come to life and they preach again. They have nothing more, they don't speak again. God says, let's go, and they come up. They've, they've heard you now, and now they've seen that life comes from me, God. The breath of life goes back to Genesis when God breathes into Adam the breath of life. The idea in Genesis and the creating of Adam is a body of flesh and blood that is totally there and totally dead until God <sighs> breathes in them the breath of life. The word for breath and the word for spirit are the same Greek word, pneuma, from which we get pneumonia, pneumatic, you know, that kind of thing. Um, just an amazing miracle. They stood on their feet. Were they really dead? They were really dead. Are they really alive? They're really alive. And terror struck those who saw them. I, I can't even imagine. Then they, I'm not sure who that refers to, it sounds like it refers to Moses and Elijah, but it could be those who saw them. That's the last noun in the sentence prior. Do you see it? Are all the witnesses hearing the voice? Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, Shekinah glory cloud, while their enemies looked on with mouths wide open. Can you imagine? mind-blowing. So God likes to punctuate miracles with some other phenomena, right? Jesus is on the cross. Do you remember? And the miracles three days later, Joe, when he rises from the dead. No. What happens while he's on the cross? Darkness in the middle of the day. If you know about eclipses, it couldn't happen on Passover because of the full moon. Impossible. So in the middle of the day, God says, you know how much darkness Jesus is taking, how much guilt, how much sin, how much shame? It's a dark day spiritually, because my wrath is coming down on him. 
darkness in the middle of the day. Supernatural darkness, miracle number one. Miracle number two, you remember in the gospel accounts, a huge earthquake. Coincidence? No, of course not. Third miracle, do you remember? There was a big, thick curtain. Josephus writes it was the thickness this way of a man's hand. They would add fabric to it year after year, and it got to be this thick. That curtain, if we make this the Jewish temple where the Jews would worship, behind me would be the altar, if you will. Not the altar. Think of this as a room with uh, a curtain separating it. Back there is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the actual presence of God was. Oh, wait, we'd like a tour. No, no. No one goes in there except the high priest and only once a year. There's a separation. There's a big, thick curtain. You can't go in there. You can't see in there. Why? Because we're all sinners and God's holy. What's the other miracle when Jesus dies? God from from top to bottom takes that curtain and tears the whole thing in half meaning what that the access way is now open because the sins have been paid for for all who believe miracles in the same way he punctuates this miracle of their resurrection with some other miracles um, verse 13 at that very hour no coincidence there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. That's a lot of real estate. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And here it comes. And the survivors went about their lives as before. No, they were never the same. Listen, the survivors were two things. Terrified, understandable. Earthquake, major resurrection. These are strange times. But look at the second phrase. Not only were they terrified, they gave glory to the God of heaven. What does that mean? In the Bible, when someone gave glory to God, it's, it's the same as saying they became believers. They gave glory to God. Man, in his default position as a sinner, wants for himself glory. This. Good job, Joe. Yes. People like me. They really like me. They like the painting I did or the thing I built or the song I wrote or the... Good job, Joe. A Christian is someone that says, oh, no, no. Any talent you see coming out of this body came from him. It's all his glory. To believe in Jesus is to give glory where it belongs. Salvation is not 50% Jesus, 50% me, because I'm so spiritual, I had to really think about it and come to Jesus. It's not 90 Jesus, 10% Joe. It is zero Joe, 100% Jesus. Joe was drowning in the middle of Bass Lake, a sea of sin, and God saved me. I can't get to the shore panting and say, well, Thank you for saving me. But I, you know, I was kicking. I was helping a little bit. Come on. It, they gave glory to God, meaning they believed. Mission accomplished. Pretty amazing. 
Um, we're going to stop here. By the way, the second woe is past. We'll talk about that next week. The third woe is coming soon. Is this a woe? Yes, because now there's no excuse for all those Jews. They either believe or they don't. And most do. Um, let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing story. I love the story of the two witnesses. And Lord, we don't know if it was really Moses. It will be Moses or Elijah and Elijah, I mean, or maybe Enoch or maybe just somebody in the spirit and the power of them. But whatever. What we've read here, God, is an amazing miracle in grace that you show the world and the people of Israel to draw them to salvation in mercy. You didn't have to do it this way. They have the law. They have the prophets. Jesus is clearly presented as the Messiah there. There's abundant proof that he rose from the dead. And yet you show them in spades. Jesus is the one. And like their Lord, Elijah and Moses rise like everyone who believes rises. What an awesome thing. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds, God. May, be, may they change the way we live. May they strengthen our faith. And may we look at our world and realize time may be very short. And may we, if we see these things, glorify your name even more. Use us for your glory, God. That's what it's all about. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here, those of you on Zoom. Those of you that are here in person, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Very important. And those of you on Zoom, we'll see you next week, God willing. Have a great night. God bless you.